Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. It's Friday afternoon, Tyler. We don't usually say when we're recording things, but uh, it's Friday afternoon, so I'm feeling really great to be done with a really busy week and really looking forward to this show we're going to have today. Well, one of the nice things about Fridays is you get to look back at the week that was. Yes. Maybe pour yourself a few fingers <laughs> of your favorite beverage. That's right. You can and relax. sit back and contemplate. Contemplate. What happened? Yeah. And, you know, one of the great things about the uh, network, the a- a- American Shoreline Podcast Network, is we've got a couple of real coastal professionals we love to have on every once in a while to keep us on the straight and narrow when we think about all the great policy issues coastal professionals are contending with and uh this guest that we have today i think i don't know third or fourth time on the show um my one of my favorite people on the american shoreline uh in the professional community one of the most provocative thinkers about what we're doing to address climate change uh shoreline erosion what our programs and spending are isn't any good uh, Dr. Rob Young, the director of the program for the study of developed shorelines, Tyler from Western Carolina University. Peter, uh, we always enjoy kicking love- it around with Rob. I do. And today, you know, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, we, uh, the government, but we collectively are making massive investments yeah. in coastal protection. And in, this is all, of course, in response to the ongoing Uh, findings that sea level rise and sunny day flooding are becoming just increasing problems on the American shoreline. And of course, that falls to the Army Corps of Engineers and other parts of the federal government and local and Mm -hmm. state governments to respond. And uh, we have, it seems, opened the tap, haven't we? We, Some money's flowing through. Some money flowing. Is it going in the right place? Does it work? That's kind of the subject matter today. And then uh, Rob's... uh, general observations on the state of affairs on the American shoreline. Uh, If you don't follow Rob Young on LinkedIn, you're missing it. Uh, Rob is an insightful thinker and critic of American coastal policy. Uh, One of the most up-to-date people you'll find on LinkedIn. It's always insightful, always interesting and provocative to read. Uh, So I can't wait to jump into this show with Rob Young. Me too. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest Questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline like what you're hearing and want to support the network sponsorship packages are now available go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more well uh dr young rob great to have you back on the american shoreline podcast 
always a treat. Always fun to hang out with you guys. Well, I'm going to jump into it based on one of your more recent LinkedIn posts. Uh, there was an article that was recently uh, done by the Yale Climate Connections uh, um, program up at Yale University about high tide, sunny day flooding, and the bleak federal report, it says, uh, that this particular condition is going to become more and more of a threat to coastal communities. And your comment was, I cannot overstate how disruptive this is going to be for the life along the coast. If you're not preparing for this, looking at you, Charleston, you're not preparing. <laughs> so that's the kind of, Rob, I mean, the Charleston uh, community down there in your neck of the woods, uh, uh, really, t t talk to us about about what you're seeing in the programmatic response to high tide sunny day flooding, why that article jumped out and why that was worth your time on LinkedIn. You know, I spent a, a good part of the early portion of my career really focusing on storm impacts. And we, we still do here at the program for the study of developed shorelines. Um, you know, I'm on the ground after most major hurricanes during reconnaissance for a wide variety of different projects. And and certainly storm impacts are still a, a, something that we need to prepare for and understand and do a better job of mitigating uh, for those impacts. But I think what's really getting lost in the shuffle is the long-term systemic changes that sea level rise is going to bring to our everyday lives in coastal communities up and down the East Coast, Gulf Coast, and the West Coast of the United States. Uh, you know, rising sea level is generating sunny day flooding, has been for a while now, it also raises the water table underneath our communities, making it more difficult for rain bombs to infiltrate the ground. So long-term rising sea level brings water in from the bay, the estuary, or the sea during king tides. It also makes it much more difficult to handle our stormwater runoff. And you know, those two aspects of coastal hazards are not really adequately accounted for in the way we spend most of our money adapting to coastal vulnerability. The Corps of Engineers, for example, by and large, the coastal projects that they're doing are intended to address storm damage reduction. So this is everything from beach nourishment projects to building seawalls around the Charleston Peninsula or other structural projects like that. They are optimizing the design of those projects to reduce storm damage. And I keep thinking to myself um, that uh, we may be focusing on the wrong problem. Um, you know, storms can be very damaging, but the flood water goes away within two or three days. You can rebuild um, depending on how bad the damage is. But if your community is seeing roads underwater 30, 40, 50, 60 times a year, 
and neighborhoods flooding. And if you can't get rid of the water from large precipitation events anymore, um, whose are the kinds of things that are really going to be disruptive to day-to-day -day life, economic activities, your ability to move around your community? And if that if that's happening everywhere from Boston to the Tidewater, Virginia area, you know, Charleston, Savannah, Jacksonville, Miami-Dade County, all the way around the Gulf Coast, and not as much of a problem on the West Coast, but still an issue. Uh, you know, I'm just not quite sure how we're going to handle that change. And, you know, I think we really need to take a look at this new NOAA report that is projecting the number of king tide flooding days between now and 2050. And the increase is staggering. It's a pretty scary map to look at. Um, and we have to understand that uh, simply putting up another seawall or pumping up another a large beach nourishment project is not likely to be addressing this nuisance flooding issue. Living shorelines are not addressing this nuisance flooding issue. Um, yeah, they may knock down the wave energy a little bit when uh, the tide is high, but they're not going to stop the flooding. And, you know, I think that this is a big blind spot for us when we are planning for the next two to three decades of rising sea level. I mean, 2050 is not that far away. I might still be alive in 2050. <laughs> um, Hopefully we are. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that uh, that issue is something that we, we really need to take a little bit more seriously. Well, I can see why it's, it's a harder one to deal with because it's, it's happening so slowly. Uh, at least that's the way it would appear. The the change, you know, I Peter, I remember when we first started working together uh, down in South Padre Island, you were working on a erosion response plan. Mm -hmm. yeah. And part of that plan included a sea level rise projection that was something like, I mean, it was basically, it was so small. It was, it was modest. It was so teeny-weensy that it wasn't considered to be a big deal. And Rob, I'm, I'm not familiar with the NOAA report you're referencing, but um, can you explain a little bit more why uh, these, you know, when I think of sea level rise, and, and Peter, I should just as a caveat mention that we did have on a NOAA scientist talking about, I believe, this very report. Is that, I, I'm guessing it was a, it's... It was, a, it was a similar report. Dr. It was, Billy Sweet was on the show. That's right, and it was on the... Uh, the updated climate assessment for the coast that included substantial technical analysis on sea level rise. You're right. That report he's referring to is the eighth state of the high tide flooding report produced by NOAA's National Ocean Service. This is the eighth in a series. It's probably a different report. A lot I think of reports. A bit very similar, yeah. It's hard to keep all the reports is, straight. Yes. But, uh, Rob, what, what is driving uh, sea level rise in this sunny day flooding? I mean, the the forecasts were so low just a few years ago, and now it seems like these things are just accelerating. Um, yeah, the, you know, the earlier report that you're referring to was the one that sort of gave us an update and um, a new scientific 
uh, assessment of projected rising sea level for the U.S. that really constrained the rate of sea level rise by 2050. That was a very important report as well. Um, the this most recent uh, report on King Tides, which also has a very nice website that goes along with it, where you can visualize what's going on, is uh, you know really what has spurred me to raise this topic again and. You know, I think that we've got a couple of things going on. You know, rising sea level is pretty complex, right? It's related to global warming. It's related to changes in ocean circulation. It's related to land movement and tectonics locally to give you differences in the relative rate of sea level rise. And uh, that rising sea level can also change tidal amplitudes in some place. And in addition, you've got natural cyclical forcing factors that change tidal range and tidal amplitudes uh, on cycles that are on the order of 18 years. And, uh, you know, all of that combines to sort of modulate the number of high tide and king tide flooding days that we might have. And that's not considering whether or not the wind is blowing the wrong way on one of those days, or um, you have a day when you might not normally have tidal flooding, but it's just high enough and you've got uh, a persistent nor'easter or something like that, that will also increase the storm-driven flooding um, that might otherwise be minimal. Um, so all of these things are combining to regularly inundate low-lying coastal areas, uh, up and down the, the East Coast and Gulf Coast primarily. And, um, you know, it's it's one of those things that you're correct. It's, it seems to be a little bit more difficult to prepare for. It, the, uh, the way that you deal with this is a little bit more complex and, because it's handling storm water and you're, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily life-threatening, so it's not quite as scary as preparing for a Category 3 or 4 hurricane. Right. But it can, uh, you know, really disrupt life in the coastal zone and that economic activity. And if you imagine, as this new report predicts, if we're talking about some cities having to deal with a month to two months worth of inundation every single year that's not going to go away, uh, that, that, that's potentially more disruptive than getting hit by a major hurricane once every 10 or 20 years. Yep, yep. Well, I think it is fair to say, Rob, in, in the three plus years that we've been doing coastal news today, the, uh, the amount of information out there, analysis uh, on uh on high tide flooding and uh, clear sky flooding is much more robust. There is a greater awareness of coastal risk now than in, in many of the conversations that we have with coastal professionals nowadays. The point I think that you're raising that has real implications is, is what is the policy response to this occurrence that I, I agree with you 100%. These are disruptive events, and there's very good studies on this. I think of Southport, North Carolina, where they did a study on the number of days that the downtown, the old downtown street in beautiful little Southport, 
gets flooded, and it really prevents the businesses from operating for 30 days of the year. I mean, this is really disruptive economically. It's disruptive to the community and property values. And yet, Rob, we just got, we're just in the middle of getting through WERDA right now, the Water Resources Development Act. There's billions of dollars in big, giant coastal projects in here, the Ike Dyke, other massive infrastructure projects that are, as you say, driven by storm damage reduction prevention, storm damage reduction uh, strategies that seem to leave this out. And, and I think the point you're, you're, you're kind of making here is that our policy hasn't quite fully accounted for this, and our federal spending and strategies of adjusting to what's going on are just lagging. I mean, tell us about how this impacts the policy universe that you're saying. Well, I'll give you a perfect example of sort of the the management conundrum that this places a community in. And, and you know, I'll talk about Charleston uh, because I do spend a lot of time down there. Ch- Charleston uh, has had serious issues with sunny day flooding, king tide flooding for the, the last decade, and it is clearly getting worse. And it, it inundates roads. It uh, surrounds the medical district with water, which is not a, a great thing. Um, and Charleston is also in the middle right now of consideration for a uh, seawall that the United States Army Corps of Engineers has designed that would wrap around the Charleston perimeter. The seawall, while it uh, might do some good to reduce some of this sunny day flooding, it's certainly not optimized for that. And all of the economic justification for the seawall is in storm damage reduction. So the seawall is designed to reduce storm damage from the next hurricane. The the last serious hurricane that really impacted the Charleston Peninsula was Hugo in 1989. So one one could argue, um, you know, how critical that is. Um, But so if you're Charleston and you have to come up with a local share uh, either for this seawall or, uh, and you have to deal with stormwater management and this increasing rate of sunny day flooding. Uh, the question is, where do you start? You know, so the seawall is a project that's over a billion dollars. The, the locality is going to come, have to come up with, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of match at the same time that the city is also going to need to deal with nuisance flooding and king tide flooding. Uh, the uh, discussion over the seawall is front and center right now. And, um, you know, the good news for the city of Charleston with the seawall is that there would be significant federal match available at because this is a core project. But where do you start? Like they don't right now, obviously, have the money to do everything. So we need to decide what what the most serious long-term threat is. Uh, Is it, in fact, nuisance flooding, sunny day flooding, and what would we do differently rather than build a wall around the perimeter to fix that problem? And uh, because it's probably not possible to do everything. So, you know, this is really the sort of management and policy conundrum is that, as you mentioned, we are spending a tremendous amount of money. I mean, the Corps of Engineers right now has more money than they can spend annually. And they're really struggling to meet the capacity of what's being asked of them. 
Um, but the vast majority of that money is being spent, designed, engineered, the economic analysis is all focusing on pretty straightforward storm damage reduction rather than these long-term endemic changes that are going to be driven by rising sea level. And, you know, to me, that is that is the sunny day flooding, but it's also this rising water table along uh, all low-lying coastal areas. You're, that you're, is- you're, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Rob, but you're getting into kind of an interesting philosophical policy uh, evolution. I mean, I would I would consider this discussion, this idea that we're talking about right now to be like an important part of climate adaptation, which is that, you know, kind of our initial fear is of the of the storm walloping our infrastructure, our cities, killing lots of people, creating billions of dollars in damage that is, I should point out, highly visible and dramatic. And, um, you know, human beings, everything I've learned in my short life, (laughs) y'all, is that uh, uh, we respond to threats like that much more quickly than we do to something that is moving, at least perceived to be moving more slowly. But what you're saying, Rob, is like, actually, when you think about it, these are like thousands of little paper cuts Then, when added up are extremely costly to the American shoreline, not only in lost, you know, the use of roads and infrastructure, but, you know, p- quite potentially having to totally redo parts of the city that just break when they're submerged all the time. I have to imagine that, that that's got to be a factor as well. How, you know, drawing on, on your history, Rob, how do we make that transition? I mean, how long has the Corps been doing this economic analysis component when they do a project? And has it changed over time? And is it reasonable to suggest that it could change uh, for the better now? Well, you know, I think the United States Army Corps of Engineers is happy to do what they're asked to do. They uh, That sounds they about are, right. <laughs> they are constrained in many ways. And I, it's always been difficult for me to determine which of those constraints they place on themselves and which come from OMB and which come from local politics and all of those kinds of complications. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think the core would necessarily be uncomfortable with the paradigm sh- shift, but um, it's a damn big ship to have to turn <laughs> when there are uh, so many projects that are currently underway, so much funding that's already been uh, uh, placed forward for projects. Um, And, you know, so that's a part of the trick is, you know, we really need a national discussion about how this happens. And, and, you know, let me say for, if you're a local resilience officer or planner or emergency manager, it may sound odd for me to say this, but in some ways I would be much less concerned about the next storm um, as far as resilience funding goes than uh, about these long-term changes. Because if you are uh, hit by Hurricane Sandy or Katrina or Maria or Ike or something big like that, federal funds typically flow into your community to help you put things back. Yes, but they do. most communities are on their own in dealing with uh, funding solutions to nuisance flooding and stormwater management 
and uh, putting check valves on your on your stormwater drainage system. Um, all of those kinds of things are typically funded locally or at the state level or something like that. Uh, so, you know, the way that the system is set up right now, if you have to spend local dollars, um, you know, I think you really need to seriously be considering uh, looking at those long-term changes that are going to have real significant impacts. And, you know, if you get hit by a big storm, it's, it's much more likely the federal government is going to come riding in on a white horse and help make you whole again. Um, the same is not guaranteed every time you have nuisance flooding and it's slowly degrading the economic activity of your community. I hmm. hope that, that distinction makes sense. Yeah, it does. That makes great sense. And, and it's really what we're talking about here is that the preference, I don't know if this is a fair statement, tell me if this is, uh, you disagree with this or not, but it seems that the decision-making criteria that we have built in federal, federal shore protection policy and the Water Resources Development Act and the suite of uh, guidance documents that, that control what the Corps does, um, those policies add up to large-scale storm damage reduction projects, as you've said. There's a pipeline that we have built based on that framework. And, uh, yeah, the challenge here is how do you turn that spigot in a different direction, uh, given the fact that this is a loaded pipeline, um, is it, does it come down, Rob, you had mentioned in the pre-discussion we were having about the Corps of Engineers benefit cost analysis and the flaws in that. I don't want to say, well, uh, flaws, but do you agree that the federal policy structure drives us towards large-scale storm damage reduction projects? And it is really the crux of that is the Corps of Engineers benefit cost analysis approach. Is that fair to say? Well, I, you know, I think the the, the cost analysis or the economic analysis that the core does would need to move. There need to be some way to do that for any project, even if it's not storm damage averted, which is what most core projects are these days. Um, and it could certainly be altered. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the economic analysis that the core of engineers does, I'm afraid to me is entirely and completely scientifically invalid and meaningless anyway, um, but at least it is very expensive and time-consuming. <laughs> uh, um, why, why, why is it broken? Explain that to our listeners a little bit. But, let, so let me give you an example. So again, we'll use, I'll stick with Charleston for a little while. Um, no, no offense to my friends in the, in the Charleston district of the core who are very nice people and I, all well-intentioned. In a lovely city. And, you know, so I, yeah. um, please don't take this personally, um, <laughs> friends in the core. Um, but here's how it works, right? So if you want to understand whether your project is going to make more money or save more money for the federal government than it's going to cost, you have to add up the amount of storm damage that your project is going to reduce, storm damage averted. Mm -hmm. So for the Charleston Peninsula, for example, what the Corps basically does for their economic analysis is that they go in there and they create a suite of synthetic storms that they're going to run at the peninsula. And uh, they use those storms to uh, model the storm surge height along the shoreline of the Charleston Peninsula. 
Um, so they develop a model grid and, and they bring in these storms and they have a modeled storm surge height. And then on top of that storm surge, they use a wave model to put some waves on top that they run into the Charleston Peninsula. Um, all of these models, by the way, of course, have some level of uncertainty in them, probably a fairly large level of uncertainty. We have no way to quantify that uncertainty. So then they take those, that surge and those waves and they run it into buildings and they have these damage factors where they estimate the damage that will occur with a given storm surge height and a given wave climate for a typical construction of a building. Uh, they went through and they did some dashboard assessment of what the first finished floor elevation was for these buildings. They have to project the amount of damage that the seawall would stop based on that assessment, and they project it decades into the future, which means that they're having to approximate what the real estate market is going to be like for those properties as you go into the future. All of this is added up at the end of the day into a final total damage averted by year for that particular project so that you can add up all those years and compare it to the overall cost of the project. In Charleston, for example, the, uh, the, the benefit cost ratio ended up being, I can't remember, it was, it was double digits. It was like 10.2 or something like that. Wow, that's very high. Uh, and then the Corps revised it after doing some other tinkering to something like 11.1 or 11.3. Um, what's absurd in all of this, of course, is that there's a decimal point in their, in their benefit cost ratio <laughs> because there is a tremendous amount of certainty and large error bars in every single piece of information that goes into that economic analysis, right? We start with making up storms, then we go to predicting storm surges based on that. Then we, we do wave modeling. All of this has some level of uncertainty that propagates through the model. Um, and at the end of the day, we produce a result that has this compounded uncertainty, but with no error bars at all. No way for us to know how right or wrong that number is. Mm -hmm. The idea that you put three significant digits into your benefit cost analysis with a number that has a decimal point and a number on the right side of that decimal, to me, is patently absurd. You're not buying that accuracy. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? So This is a, uh, this is a significant figures joke, which is kind of funny. At the, at the end of the day, you know, this economic analysis is just one guess of millions of different possibilities. And it would be way too expensive to do scenario planning and, um, you know, <clears throat> try out hundreds of different uh, scenarios that for how this might go. But, you know, what we have to understand is that this economic analysis from a scientific perspective is... I don't know, relying on that number and believing it is just pure hubris Be because uh, we have no idea how right or wrong any final number is for any final project. Hmm. And it's probably off by, you know, f factor of two, a hundred, a thousand. I'm really not sure. And, 
you know, when you've got a benefit cost analysis in a place like Charleston that's in double digits, then, you know, maybe if you tinker with things, it, it's not really going to make much of a difference because the property values are pretty high on the Charleston Peninsula. But in places like New Jersey, following Katrina, sorry, following Sandy, I mean, there were benefit cost analyses that were like 1.04, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and then the project can go forward because it's over one. Well, you know, to me, this whole process is just pretty absurd. Um, either we do the projects or we don't, but we spend a tremendous amount of money doing this arm waving that we call this economic analysis. And I honestly don't really believe that it's scientifically valid. And I don't believe that we're really learning what we think we're learning from it. Well, I mean, it's an interesting idea. I mean, first of all, I have to say, I, uh, there, it seems to me, Rob, that there are at least there's at least mer merit from a public policy perspective to have some sort of economic analysis as part of a project's consideration. I mean, to, to, to weigh the cost and the benefit just seems like a, a smart thing to do. Now, now, how to generate a dollar figure that can be put into that ratio, I think you point out is, you know, quite a difficult exercise. But we live in the era of big data, and I have to, and we're doing a lot, as you point out, we're doing a lot of these projects. There are a lot of these economic analyses being conducted. And this brings me to another thing, Rob, that you wanted to talk about, which has to do with a system of evaluation. I mean, what if we could uh, evaluate how accurate these evaluations are and, I don't know, try to have, have that algorithm that's producing these uh estimates maybe get better with some machine learning? Is this possible? <laughs> I don't think it's possible, honestly. Uh -huh. you know? And this probably comes from my perspective as a geologist rather than an engineer. I mean, you know, we ask engineers to do things and we expect them to do them. As a natural scientist, I sort of have the luxury of sitting back and being able to voice my skepticism about something. But you know, a 50-year project formulation or even a 10-year project formulation where we're trying to project benefits out decades into the future with a tremendous amount of uncertainty is impossible. We just can't do it, you know? So I, I think that rather than trying to improve the way we do the modeling, we, we just need to trash the whole system and we need to figure out a different way that we understand what we value as a society when we want to do a project or not. Hmm. And, um, you know, you could simplify it and just say, well, the, obviously the Charleston Peninsula is a good place to do this because look at all these really high property values. Hmm. The, you know, the, uh, but this leads us to the other problem with the core's economic analysis, which is that it's based almost entirely on property value because, uh, the higher the cost of the property that you're protecting, the more dollars and storm damage averted you can have. Yeah. So in Charleston, for example, that seawall stops just short of an African-American community that has homes that, that do not have property values that are high enough to protect. Um, and we see this over and over again around the country hmm. where um, people in working class communities, blue collar communities, communities of color, 
often get left out or we offer them buyouts or maybe if they're lucky we'll try and find some way to raise some of those homes but what we don't do is build a seawall around them yeah. and the reason for that again comes back to the way this economic analysis is done where it's just it, the way it is right now the only thing we are valuing is property value we're not mm -hmm. valuing community structure we're not valuing uh, people who are in their primary residences working to serve in a community. Uh, there's so many other things that don't get included in that economic analysis that, quite frankly, just makes us seem really shallow in the way that we're approaching storm damage reduction through these resilience projects. I want to ask you to... Uh go into a little bit more detail in your own mind as to how uh, we might value these projects differently. Because, you know, one thing that comes to mind to me is that the ur major urban centers of the United States... Yes, yeah, save the money. Well... We're just going to do it. W well, I, I don't... I think we are going to do it, but, like, these are... There's... These are dense urban areas with lots of people in them, lots of taxpayers in them, lots of people who are, I, I imagine, interested in seeing uh, their area, quote unquote, protected, you know, walled, whatever the case may be. They want a core project. They want, if you live in New York City, you don't want to get flooded out. You want to see the city, the state and the feds take the action to do that. Now, there's a lot of areas along the American shoreline that are not urbanized at all. And that's a different story. But, I, you know, what is the answer here, Rob? I mean, it seems to me like we have to protect these urban areas, regardless of what the number is. <laughs> so, so I think the question that you're asking is exactly what we need to be talking about at a national level. We need some kind of a national conversation about where the federal interest is. And also, even maybe even more importantly, where the public interest is and where the public interest stops and, and, and private interest picks up. Um, so because, you know, I have some opinions on the answer to that question, but really what we need is uh, a national plan. <laughs> and we don't really have that national plan. I mean, we yeah. could decide that, sure, the, you know, you're always going to want to protect some uh some level of property value. You're not going to want to spend $10 billion to protect one, you know, $100,000 shack. Um, but at the same time, you ought to be able to get credit for the number of people that you're helping, or um, if these people are all in their primary residences, or if this is a traditionally underserved community, or if there are um, some particular environmental benefits that will come out of this particular project. You know, there ought to be mm -hmm. other ways for us to parse this beyond storm damage averted. And, mm -hmm. um, and let me just, again, to be clear, I don't think the Corps of Engineers would necessarily be opposed to this. They just need to be driven in that direction. I think they want to do good. I think they want to help people. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, in no way suggesting that this is something that they are entirely driving or that they're even dogmatic about this. It is something that needs a political fix. Right. Um, and, you know, this is something that Congress, they're the ones who are throwing all this money out there that they need to grapple with and fix. 
Yeah, I think the important thing that you've said, and and in listening to you and the critique of the benefit cost analysis utilized by the core is something I you know we've all heard about this in the coastal profession now for a long time. These are often discussed, uh, and in one sense you can say, well, there's got to be a method to score these things. We've got an established uh, approach, and it's got so many dials in it, and and the core can dial in or dial out a project. There's so many different variables that can be um, uh, toyed with uh, to, to get to a result that perhaps is politically uh, um, desired. Um, and you could just say, well, we've got to have a system. Why not? The problem with that, and I think the important thing that you pointed out, is there's something insidious about the methodology because it skews away from a more just distribution of federal benefits along the American shoreline, that there are communities that simply can't make the test because they're poorer, they are rural, less dense. But as a federal policy, we're going to spend money in Boston and Houston and Miami and Charleston, and there's going to be billion-dollar massive projects. The system's going to deliver that result. But outside of those, as Tyler, you're saying, outside of these highly dense urban areas, do we have a coherent damn plan, and are we actually committing a wrong by utilizing a system that doesn't fairly evaluate a broader spectrum of interest. Yeah, and I would also add that I mean, the leadership thing I just think is so important. I mean, we're in this moment right now. I have to say, uh, Rob, ab about this current batch of funding, thinking about the infrastructure bill, I'm thinking about this most recent uh, Inflation Reduction Act mm -hmm. uh, funding. Warda. And then WERDA, of course, which is the core funding package, I believe. Is that mm -hmm. right, Peter? Yep, yep. And, you know, basically, you know, I, I, I think that we have been operating at a, an incredibly, like, oxygen lean environment hmm. all these years. I mean, we have seen climate change coming. We have seen, we've been talking about sea level rise and uh, storm intensity increasing for years. But uh, it does seem like this... Uh, infusion of investment is the oxygen coming into the system that can get things going. But I, I, I have to agree mm. that we are not good at this yet. Like, um, <laughs> there are some real, there's some real like leadership uh, decisions that need to come through. And I'm curious how we are going to talk about uh, coastal resilience from like a national perspective uh, going forward. Because really, you're, I mean, my read of what's happened in Congress, Peter, is that basically, you know, everybody wants to bring home a core project to their district, right? Like you want, yeah. you want your, we got your back. community earmarks wants to are... be, needs to be sure. uh, protected. And I don't know, it just seems like increasingly it's going to become harder and harder and harder to justify protecting everywhere. And it is in fact everywhere that's going to be impacted by climate change. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, at the moment right now, I think we're acting as if we can hold every shoreline in place in America forever. I mean, you know, we're beach nourishment, for example. We are renourishing beaches from southern Maine all the way around to Padre Island. And then we hop over and we pick up in Southern California. Um, and, uh, and the Corps is doing 50-year project formulations for most of these communities, yeah. which, again, I think, to me, um, is scientific malpractice. Um, but that's 
what they're being asked to do. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think we, we don't currently have a realistic approach and we are spending now a tremendous amount of money. You're right. I mean, so the good news is that there is a, a very much an increased awareness of our vulnerability and of climate change and of rising sea level. Um, you know, 15 years ago, I wrote a report for the state of North Carolina projecting sea level rise to 2050 to 20 and 2100 that my legislature basically voted out of existence. <laughs> they, did. they passed a law that they said you can't consider what was the number? He's like, you cannot consider any projection of sea level rise that's more than like a couple of feet. You're just not going to do mean, it. It doesn't matter. No what acceleration right? yeah, for right. coastal planning purposes. Yeah, we ended up on Stephen Colbert. Um, <laughs> that's insane. Um, because Stephen was making fun of it. So, well, you, you know, know being able to outlaw sea level rise would be a really cool thing if we could do it. You could just pass a law and say, well, that ain't going to happen. There you go. Right. We're done. That would be nice, you know. So, just- so the good news is that we're really not dealing with that anymore. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, everybody on all, all sides of the aisle, I think, um, understands that we have problems that we need to solve. Um, the, again, you know, the main problem is that we, we, we're not doing this in a particularly organized way. And I think the, the second aspect of this is that we don't really have um, good oversight of that spending and how it all turns out, you know? I mean, we have no organized way to assess the the ultimate outcomes mm-hmm. of the billions of dollars of federal taxpayer money that we are spending huh. in doing these resilience projects. And that's everything from living shorelines to building barrier islands off the coast of Louisiana to seawalls, beach nourishment projects, all of these things. Which of them are making a difference and which of them are not? Why not, Rob? Why don't we have a way to do that? Why don't we have an interest, perhaps, in doing that? I, boy, you know, I don't know. Um, You know, a lot of times um, when we're struggling with things, you know, maybe people don't really want to know the answer. Yeah. That's, that's my uh, guess. We we don't necessarily want to know. That's uh, it's. We like the fact that we have a system that can funnel money into projects. That uh, we do, we. This is know. brand new. I mean, what are we talking about? This, this is lack of experience. No, yeah. I mean, we're babies at <clears throat> adapting to climate change. I mean, as 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 we are today. <laughs> I mean, we are in a new era. The investments that have come down the line in twenty twenty two, are historically massive and i just i think that like the first thing that we do when we do a big investment like this whether we're going to the moon or trying to solve climate change is we we fill up the programs that are already in existence and then we start to over the course of time in iteration it's an iterative process of funding things and seeing what happens and seeing how things materialize i think we're going to get better but I do have to huh. say that the important thing that I think we are in need of now is a plan. We do need a new plan. A national we coastal are investing, strategy. This, these are historical investments, and we don't have the national coastal strategy. We really should. It's time for it. What do you think, Rob? Let me push back on what you just said. Just Please a do. Bit. We've been doing beach nourishment since the 1950s, okay? And and beach nourishment is still the primary storm damage reduction and coastal adaptation action that we take on oceanfront coasts. 
And we still do not look backwards at um, those particular projects. You know, how did we do in the economic analysis? How we, did we do in the uh, shoreline change analysis and how long the project would last? And, you know, how are we grading these particular projects? So we should grade every single one of these projects at every single nourishment interval. I mean, that's where we should be learning. I wish we took all the money that we spend doing the absurd economic analysis and spent that money having some objective party do re very detailed assessments of those project outcomes. So project performance assessment after the fact. See how it didn't work like we thought it was. Was it a smart investment? Right. And then, you know, let's look at Louisiana, for example. So in, you know, in Southern Louisiana, they have had a very good coastal master plan for a long time. And they've been spending yep. um, more money than anybody doing a wide variety of projects from building something like 60 miles of barrier island, to beneficial use projects, marsh restoration, uh, levees. I mean, you, know, yeah. you name it. It's yeah. happening in yeah. southern Louisiana. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you know, they've had a really nice, fairly organized process, very science based for uh, prioritizing projects. I have a lot of respect for the way that they've approached it all. But at, what we don't have is the same amount of rigor and understanding on the project outcomes end. So monitoring those projects. How did they do during Ida? Um, you know, which ones were actually provided meaningful storm damage reduction or so storm surge mitigation benefits? Because, um, you know, I got to tell you, after Ida last year, I spent about a week walking around southern Louisiana and the damage was still horrific. And the, the people south of New Orleans who suffered during that storm really feel a little bit misled about what all of that spending is bringing to them. Right. And, you know, I just wish that we were taking a percentage of the resources that we're spending on all these resilience projects and really evaluating the outcomes of the projects. Yeah. Um, uh, both, and not just the storm damage reduction, but the environmental benefits as well. I mean, um, you know, in Louisiana, I think that a lot of these projects are doing significant environmental good, but they're largely being sold to the to the local folks in Louisiana as being storm damage reduction in a yeah, way. Yeah, because keep you can't people. you can't score it on environmental benefits under the damn standard, right? You really, I mean, it gets accounted for in some less than important way, but yeah, because the ball game is storm damage reduction, right? Yeah, you know, that's, that's not true of all Louisiana projects because they are funded from a whole bunch of different pots of true, money. Right? They money. All, don't all yeah. have direct federal contributions. So right. they have more flexibility in all what right. they're doing. Let me ask you, all right, so I, we can't get out of this conversation about, uh, it, there's a couple of topics I want to touch first of all. Um, I think your your analysis of, of uh, the situation on the Louisiana coast on LinkedIn uh, over the last year has been perceptive and interesting, and it, you really have brought to the fore uh, the nature of the federal storm damage recovery process. There's a lot of FEMA commentary here about whether our post-disaster um, expenditures are really effective in rebuilding resilient communities and the culture and all of that. I think that has been a very fair analysis. This is another huge topic area that I'd be interested in your comments on. 
And then, Rob, we got to talk about resilience, which is the magic tag now on the American shoreline for infrastructure investment. Um, Tyler and I had the good fortune to have Nicole LaBeouf on the public on the podcast in early August. I'm a big fan of the National Ocean Service. She's the uh, director, the assistant administrator of the National Ocean Service. They've got $3 billion in their pocket right now for resiliency investments. Um, I want to start there. What's going on with resiliency? Are we thinking about it correctly? Does it make any sense at all? What do you, what's your take on resiliency investment spending on the American shoreline? How's that well, for a broad question? I, you know, I, I don't know that my take would differ too much from the, you know, the sort of the storm damage uh, uh, discussion that we just finished. I, you know, I think the good news is that most states have established resilience officers and author, offices of resiliency to try and coordinate some of this stuff, at least at the state level. Um, and, um, but, you know, there still are some just major gaps in how the funding is distributed. You know, one huge gap, for example, is that resilience funding tends to end up in places that have the capacity to go after the resilience funding. So um, in the southeastern U.S., there are extensive low-lying coastal areas that are in unincorporated areas and counties. And those places tend to be completely off the radar for resilience spending because um, it's much easier for the state or the federal government to deal with an incorporated entity like a municipality. Um, And those places tend to have the capacity to do whatever it is that's needed to tap into that resilience spending. So like so many other things, you you know, we have um, large sections of real estate, at least, that may not be quite as densely populated, but still uh, are just really falling through the cracks in all of this. Um, But, you know, in, in general, I like to try and be optimistic. And I think that there are a lot more good people. You know, Rob, about- I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to chuckle at that. I, I, I appreciate that. I think you're, I think you're a good contrarian and I think you're a good skeptic. And uh, I do, no, I do appreciate You don't think that. Rob is optimistic? Well, I think Rob wants things to be different and better and uh, not afraid to say so. I think that's an important role. I think that's an important part of optimism, you know. Yeah, you got to you have to see room for improvement in order to, you know, get up about something. Here's the uh, here's where I'm optimistic is I think that all of the new people that are entering this field are good people and I think the people in the core are good people and mm-hmm. I think everybody wants to do better and um, and you know there is a much larger critical mass addressing these issues than there was even 10 years ago. And so, you know, maybe that's going to make the difference. I mean, honestly, probably the biggest impediment to um, to ev- all of this working out better is the dysfunction in Washington, in particular on Capitol Hill. Well, <laughs> um, that's the place where I'm not optimistic. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I I I do feel like we're going to bounce off the bottom of the pool here and shoot back up, and we're going to come into another. Uh, well, I won't say another era of of greatness, but I do. I I just really think that, um, in particular, this climate change adaptation moment that we find ourselves in is going to be a period of growth for the country, and 
for all of us Americans who are going to try to be involved in uh, fixing these problems. I mean, it, th these are deep, deep, deep problems that go beyond just like where we build our infrastructure. It has to do with our whole economic system that we all live under. You know, it's th these are huge uh, global systems that that are in, at play here. But I have to say that I do think that there is a real opportunity here. And I, Rob, one of the things that caught my eye this summer were, were those tragic uh, floods in Kentucky. Uh, now, I, I, I don't think about Kentucky, I have to say, too frequently, but it does seem like with, with climate change events, I'll call that a climate change event, you know, major flooding, you know, in Dallas, Peter, and then, by the way, that storm went on and walloped Mississippi and it walloped Louisiana. And this kind of, week, yeah. Just this week. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, our thinking about resilience and what that means has got to change. Whether We're going to rise to the occasion a little bit, you think? Well, I think what I, what I want to say is I, I'm concerned about the... A lot of the problems that Rob talks about, I have noticed a, 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 a pattern. Rob does not like industrial complexes. Um, <laughs> he doesn't like he does not like industrial he does not there. like industrial complexes that are industrial you know ecosystems of of economic activity that are predicated on maybe inefficient allocations of government policy and and resources hmm. and I do think that you know as we look at the American shoreline and Rob talked about the, you know 1950 and all those federal shore protection projects that got started where they're dredging material. You know, some of that stuff is just not going to be viable forever. And if our leaders, our congressmen and women, are being told by those industries that have the resources to say, hey, we have the answer to the, to the problem, I, I think that there is, that is an issue. Just like the military-industrial complex, pre, you know, mm. presented that kind of waste and, and uh, mm. excess in spending and, you know, silly, I mean, there's all sorts of silly stories of projects going way over the top that don't really work, I think that we have a similar problem here. And that's why one of the things that Nicole talked about on the show was getting new businesses, new minds, new people engaged. And I think that's just super important. Nobody knows the answer all the way to all this all right. stuff yet. Nobody. Rob, do we have a beach restoration industrial complex in America? <laughs> um Sort so of, kind will, of. You know, I will. Um, Did I get you right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he's not sure. Yeah. Go ahead, Rob. What would you? What's your take? Um, I, I think that um, you know what we really need here with all of this federal funding. Sorry all this federal funding is to ask a little bit more from the communities and the entities that are receiving it. Mm. So, um, hmm. for Finan example, yeah, for example, we, we still put a ton of stuff in the floodplain <laughs> and we are still in many locations, both urban and non-urban increasing the density of development in the floodplain. I, I mean, in, in the city of Charleston, a city that's asking the federal government for some six, seven hundred million dollars to build a seawall, 
they are uh, right now in the process of approving a plan to development that has about 9,000 units, of which 40% of them are in the floodplain. I'm trying not to use an F-bomb right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if one place that I think we could very simply start in all of this um, to bring some sense of order and start to address the problem is to first do no more harm. And that ought to be the one string that comes with accepting huh. substantial resilience dollars from the federal government. Right on. Is, um, you, you know, it's to me. Don't, makes me don't, not don't make it worse. Yeah, don't make it worse, right? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we shouldn't be creating problems at the same time that we're trying to fix them. And, uh, you know, that's, to yeah. me, that's a, a biggie. And the, the last little bit I'll add is that, so if, you know, if these new NOAA projections for increasing nuisance flooding are correct, all of this is going to hit everyone in the coastal zone in the face over the next 10 to 15 years. Hmm. So, um, you know, I, it would be nice if we could get ready before then. But I promise you, 15 years from now, um, there will be a completely different attitude amongst not just the professionals who pay attention like us, but everybody who live in these places 15 years from now. Um, so, so, you know, that's, um, that's the reality. I, I'm not going to have to be uh, fleshing out what might happen to folks 15 years from now because it's going to be happening right. and we're going to be standing in the water. I love to say reality is a persistent teacher and it'll get to you whether you admit it or not eventually. Uh, the point you're making is a really good one. Uh, nearly 40% of the country's 330 million plus people live in a coastal county, coastal shoreline county or land compromising less than 10% of the total U.S. land area, including, uh, this is excluding Alaska. This is from the Yale Climate Change Report on uh, high tide flooding. Uh, there was a recent study we ran in Coastal News today done by the insurance industry that looked at the expansion, the, the, the increase in the number of billion-dollar storms and disasters in America and said it really isn't because the hurricanes are bigger, they're not more intense, they're not more frequent, it's that we've put more stuff in the way of the risk, and their fundamental analysis was the increasing storm damage risks that the, uh, the country is taking on is exactly what you're saying. We're continuing to densify the coast, and we're, no, we're really doing very little to back that down. Is there any example that you can think of that we're effectively limiting uh, new development in, in high-risk flood zones on the coast? Because I'm kind of scratching my head. There aren't a whole lot of good examples, I'm afraid. Now, you know, we're doing a much better job of elevating properties in those areas. So I think, you know, I think there's a higher awareness that, that there are issues when you're building in the floodplain. Um, so, you know, there are a number of incentives uh, that encourage people to build above BFE, maybe even two to three feet above BFE, base flood elevation, right. um, and to harden your utilities and to think about things like that. But, um, you know, for me, uh, that's, that's just, um, 
that's just as problematic as building in there on a slab. I mean, we just need mm -hmm. to stay out of these flood prone areas. Mm -hmm. You still have to connect utilities. You still have roads. And if you build in the floodplain, it means you have to hold the shoreline in place in front of it. So the houses don't go to sea or don't come out into the marsh and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, we, I don't want to imply that we're building blindly in the floodplain because, okay. you know, in most cases we're not, but it's still incredibly problematic. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, and I think there's there's good analysis of this uh, out there, that the application of improved building standards has made a difference, have been implemented effectively in many areas, but like you're saying, you're still in the wrong spot. Uh, so we can't, it's not all bad news. Uh, but I think really, it's something I think, Rob, that we've talked about in the many years that I've known you running into you at ASBPA, really about what is it about the motivation that we have established that really prevents us from doing anything effective uh, to limit higher risk development on the American shoreline. It's, it's just doesn't happen uh, short of you know, federal acquisition or conservation easements or establishing a national seashore that does the trick. Uh, Cobra used to be sort of kind of a barrier, but not really anymore. I mean, no, we're still going in the wrong direction there, unfortunately. More st people want to live by the sea. Well, and I, the other thing that I think is happening, and I, I, I don't, I can't, this is just my observation, Peter, but we, we talk a lot about the gentrification of the American shoreline, and I'm I am worried that yeah. some of these you know these last remaining undeveloped areas that are that are being uh, developed and turning into Airbnb type of things, and I I, I do worry that uh, mm -hmm. people you know people are drawn to these places. We've seen it time and time again, and I I kind of you know Rob, I do have to say I agree with you that the modern building techniques and you know raising houses up hardening the utilities all of that stuff can give you i think a false sense of security uh the the to try to understand the ways that uh climate change is going to impact parts you know, the american shoreline down the road is really challenging i mean to bring this all the way back to our conversation about the economic analysis I mean, just as like an individual, if you're thinking about uh, purchasing a coastal property, I can tell you from for my my poor father lives through this stuff. It's 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 you're at the whim of nature still, regardless yeah. of what you do to your place, and it's uh, I don't know. It's definitely something where as 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 the public, we do need to have a better understanding of what we value to protect and what we are going to leave to those individuals who wish to kind of put themselves out there in a risky spot. With no federal net. I don't think so. Yeah. Or, or at least a limited, limited one. Yeah. I mean, the incentives mm -hmm. right now are, are geared the wrong way still. Yeah. They still need to change. Yeah, I mean, we, most, of the, most of the federal spending on resilience and storm damage version and federal flood insurance and all these things creates this gigantic moral hazard that encourages people to stay where they are and to continue to make money there. You, you know, I mean, that's just the way it is. You look at Dauphin Island, Alabama, which has yeah. received federal disaster declarations, I don't know, seven, eight times in the last 30 years. This is the West End of Dauphin Island. And, you know, people say to me, 
God, Rob, those people must be crazy to stay there and continue to rebuild. <laughs> and I say, actually, no, they're still making money there <laughs> yeah. on renting those houses and stuff. The ones who are crazy are the rest of us that provide <laughs> any federal funding to help those folks out, right? Well, I mean, if, they outmuscle out us politically. The people who are got that economic interest are powerful in every damn coastal community that I've been around. You know, they they they're the ones who keep the mayor in office by and large. They have a huge effect, and uh, that influence uh, reaches all the way to D.C. You know, they're strong. It's hard to it's hard to unplug them. Yeah, and you know, the argument that's typically made is that the coastal zone is such an economic powerhouse, an econo important economic engine that we can't walk away, and that it's, the federal government needs to continue to yes. support this economic powerhouse. And well, to me, you know, the, the flip side of that is that, well, if those areas are so economically important and <laughs> the property values are so high, well, they ought to be able to pay for this damn stuff themselves. I mean, you know, you know after uh, yeah. Sandy, Chris Christie came out and said, you know, we need the $60 billion Sandy Relief Act because the New Jersey coastal economy is worth some 30 something billion dollars a year. And I just sort of scratched my head and I said, well, gosh, if you were just siphoning off <laughs> a small percentage of that every year through whatever lodging taxes, accommodation taxes, I don't know, deed transfer, what you, you'd be great, right? You could be taking care of yourselves. And you know, to some degree, that's really what I'd like to see is that there are uh, most of, especially the resort communities could be paying their own freight in this. And if they did, then they would care a lot more about the science of mm -hmm. their own protection and their vulnerability and all of these other things. If they had skin in the game. You know, I'll tell you, I'll give you a good, a good news example. I did. I used to get Tyler and I used to be, uh, professional consultants and spent a lot of time explaining why the high value of the property warranted federal investment. So we've made that argument plenty of times in uh, in the local tax bases that we used to create. We used to create the local uh, assessments to match the federal investment. Um, but I was recently in the Hamptons, New York, for a small project, and the uh, this was a small unincorporated enclave. Uh, uh, community that had a shoreline erosion problem, and they created on their own initiative, Tyler, and we did show with these guys, uh, uh, reached out to the local government, created a special taxing district, which included only them, and worked out an assessment formula amongst themselves, had it adopted, and created the taxing district, and imposed a tax and paid for, and are still paying uh, for their own beach projects, up to and including, Rob, get this, they, they, this is uh, Suffolk County, New York on Long Island in the Hamptons area, South. Uh, yeah, this is Bridge Hampton, Sagaponic. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the county has a dredge there that keeps these little channels open and moves material around, but they don't have the uh, horsepower and the pipe length to really move the material from their little inlet channels they're managing onto the shoreline. So the homeowners put up 200 k taxed themselves, and bought the damn pipe for the county so they could do a better job on shoreline management. So there are examples of this. They are small, but I think there are communities that take responsibility uh, for their problems. And uh, I'm with you. I mean, what Tyler and I used to do was get paid to create those local taxing districts. And I was a big, I am still a big believer. The local property owners have a direct financial 
interest in solving these problems. I'm not sure they can often do it alone, given the scale, but they damn sure need to be at the table and they need to be a substantial contributor financially to these projects. And I, you know. There are a lot of places that are doing it on their own. And, yeah. you know, and, and these are places like Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, and Carteret County, North Carolina, which includes you know, Emerald Island, Atlantic Beach. Yep. Um, th- those are places where they have found uh, mechanisms to collect money from their tourists and the visitors and all of that economic activity and fund their own coastal protection projects. And, and, uh, uh, and, and that's really largely the way that it should be, I think. And, and I think almost all coastal resort communities could do that themselves if we simply asked them to do so. Yeah, and then made maybe it, we can made use it a some requirement. of that for other things. Yeah, there you go. I'm with you on that policy initiative. Rob, before we wrap up, it's cut, we're coming up to the end of August here. And uh, August 13th in Long Beach, California, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association National Conference will be kicking off once again. And uh, I always enjoy it when you're there, especially... That'll if, be September. Sept- what did I say, October? You said August. No, oh, I said August. It's yeah. September 13th. Uh, in Long Beach, uh, Rob, are you going? And are you going to get any stage time? Are you going to talk to uh, talk to us about any of these ideas at ASBPA this year? <laughs> I don't know yet. It's on my calendar. I haven't quite decided. Oh come um, on, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I could go to a meeting twice week in different places in the country if I really wanted to. Um, so who knows? You know, I do okay. like to go to ASBPA. I love to sit in the back of the room and just listen and take notes and, you know, make people nervous. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that I, I got to say, Tyler and I've talked about this over the years that we've been going to ASBPA is that the conversation has become more robust and wide ranging and includes retreat and 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 fair and open criticism of the strategies for shoreline management than it did 10 years ago. I think that is an honest assessment. I think you've been a big part of that, too. And it's a service to the community and a service to the profession. So I hope you do go, and I hope you keep your voice on. That's um, why I love having you on the show, because I think what you're doing and the questions that you ask are, are critical to being better. Um, well, I, I appreciate that, and just... I think ASBPA is still looking for an executive director. They right? are. They if, are. If anybody out there is uh, is interested, maybe one of you guys. <laughs> I think you should do it. It would be. It would cause an uproar if you got. If you, yeah. No, I don't know if Rob is up that's for not, consideration. That's not Rob's shtick. That's not my shtick either. Uh, well, Rob, it's always a pleasure to have you on the American Shoreline Podcast. Uh, love catching up. There's a thousand things we can talk about, and uh, but it's always great to check in with you and. I want to uh, give you the final word uh, to the listeners out there. Uh, what do you, what would you like to wrap up with? Oh gosh. Um, you know, I, just a, a couple little things, you know, of course, a lot of what I say are generalizations, uh, you know, often after I post something or show up on your podcast or somebody else's podcast, I tend to get a lot of emails and um, pointing out uh, exceptions to the, the statements that I made or the rules that I made. And, you know, I just want everybody to understand that, that I, I do realize that there are good things happening in little places and I love to hear about them. So, um, you know, please, please understand that 
you know, largely what I'm talking about uh, in these critiques are uh, generalizations. It's the way that most things are happening. And, and uh, in, in places where I'm wrong or where there are really good examples of good things happening that I've missed, please do call me out and email me. I'd love to see it because, you know, we need, um, we need good stories. We need a lot more good stories to provide solid examples of what good resilience spending is and good community engagement is and, and places where we're doing the right thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, my take on these things tends to be um, sort of <laughs> wryly critical and skeptical. Um, but I, you know, I'm also, uh, optimistic that we can move in the right direction, which is why I bother to keep talking about this stuff. And there is a, a, a rapidly growing community of practice that I'm, I'm hoping will make a big difference. And it's, you know, in a lot of ways, all of my, uh, whining is aimed at those folks, especially the young ones coming in right mm -hmm. now who will be leading us into the future. Um, just trying to give everybody something to think about. Well, you do a great job, Rob, and we always love having you on and uh, look forward to our next visit sometime uh, later this year, if not next year. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Rob Young, Director of the Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University, one of the leading thinkers on American coastal policy. Rob, always a pleasure to have you on the podcast and appreciate you sharing your insights with our listeners, you know, appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Beaches are said to be the hotels. My father.